Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Kelly McIntosh, Professor of Physical Activity and Health at Swansea University. Kelly's research focuses specifically on exercise and physical health, especially in promoting it to young people. She also leads the Exercise, Medicine and Health Research Group at Swansea. Kelly, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's very good to have you. I'm looking forward to this chat because it sort of dovetails with some of my interests, which is great. But before we get into all of it, can you just briefly introduce your research and maybe outline some of your key findings for us? Generally, the key area is to try and get people to be more active and sit less. We're actually moving away from that terminology now and trying to be a little bit more encompassing. So essentially, it's just the more active you are, then hopefully the better the the health benefits. This therefore means that I've got almost two branches of research. So the first one is trying to work out ways to actually measure children's physical activity or physical activity across the lifespan. But then it's translating that to knowing, well, how active are they? And therefore, at which time points do we have to intervene? And how do we intervene? How do we make it fun and try and get it to really instill in their long-term lifetime behaviours? Great. So before we talk about the specifics with children, let's just go back to the basics, if we can. Simplest question, but I guess it's probably one that has, a, has quite a long answer. Why is physical exercise so important? Essentially, if you look at all the research around it, it doesn't matter whether it's physical, social, psychological, there are inherent health benefits associated with being active. So some of those times where people think, in fact, the number one barrier for people not being active is time. And what I like to get straight from the off is, well, how much faster is it to stand on an escalator um, and wait for it to go up or to walk up it? So when we talk about physical activity, it's not necessarily about structured exercise. It's about what you do throughout the day and just building in these little things that you do throughout the day to try and promote your health. So if we think about various different things, so there's everything about mental health, depression, anxiety, there's all shown to be beneficial by being more active. And obviously, there's the ones that people know more about, such as cardiovascular disease, lung disease, the benefits associated with it. But also things that people maybe think slightly less around in terms of how physical activity has been shown to be more beneficial in terms of reducing the likelihood of cancer or the rehabilitation from different types of treatment. I know you're not a sort of biomedical science, scientist or anything like that, but what is, what's sort of the fundamental scientific principle behind the reason why exercise is so good for physical health? Is it just because obviously you're getting more oxygen to the body. I mean, you can tell I'm not a scientist at all, but what's the... No, that's about, that's about the same level as me. Okay, great. <laughs> there are so many different mechanisms and obviously people spend their research careers looking specifically into the mechanisms. For example, why breaking up the amount of time you spend sitting is related to more positive outcomes for type 2 diabetes. So all the different mechanisms interact, but essentially we've been evolved to be active. If you think back to the hunter-gatherer days, you had to be really active, hunt for your food, you had more nutritious food, all the way up until our modern lifestyle, whereby we can sit in a car, we could drive to a drive through get the unhealthiest food. Previously, we had to reach out and <laughs> almost tap in your, your number in terms of actually paying for it. But now we've got contact lists, we've got long poles, so you don't have to stretch as much now. So things have just evolved so much, but our bodies are designed to be active. 
and that's essentially how we've evolved. I think something that strikes me as you're talking is the whole mental and sort of psychological branch of physical exercise. Because I, I mean, I know from personal experience, but it, but it's something that almost anyone I've ever spoke to relates to as well. Is this idea that if you're not feeling very good or you're perhaps in a in a low patch, then doing some exercise, actually, you know, getting your heart rate up, being active, almost always correlates to then better mental health. That's it. It's it's the adrenaline rush associated with it. There's there's different things in terms of how intense something needs to be. There's a couple of little um, stories where people would say, well, you know, is everything all right? Would you like a cup of tea? I'm, I'm, I'm different to that one where it's a case of, well, let's go and have a walk and talk about it. It's a really hard thing to break because when you feel tired, exhausted, things are bothering you, sometimes the last thing people want to do is actually be active. But generally you'll find that when people are active, they feel much better for it. But also, I mean, and I'm, I'm coming back to my, uh, my academic student hat now, but I often find that when you're having a conversation that's a walking meeting, there's less kind of formality in some ways and you actually get the, the better conversations and engagement from people because there's different surroundings. It's not that formal setting. So yeah, there's, there's so many different benefits for me in terms of being active. It's just how you break people's habits in terms of not being active. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. And you mentioned that that nice example of, you know, walk up the escalator instead of just standing on it. Are there other sort of day-to-day examples of, of things like that which are useful? I mean, some people stand at their desk, don't they, to work instead of sitting down? Oh, the good news is I'm standing right now. Oh, right. <laughs> oh brilliant. Oh, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's one that is the key things. It's not about standing all the time, but it's breaking up your sitting time. So there's a lot of research. And again, it's still something that people are spending their careers doing. But for example, someone could be sitting for six hours a day. They could have been sitting there for the entire six hours and then gone up and they could have done the same amount of activity. Someone else's daily profile could look the same in theory because they've spent six hours sitting and they've done the same amount of activity. But how you accumulate that has very different physiological and psychological outcomes. So for example, if I every 10 minutes got up and broke up my sitting time, that's generally shown to be much more favorable. So it's it's not an easy answer, but essentially it's just thinking about what can you do in your day? So if you've got lots of meetings, can you do a standing meeting? If you're on Zoom, does it matter if you're standing up talking to people or sitting down? One of, one of the things I like doing, and it might be a little bit cruel on um, uh, new students, but whenever I do open days, I, I like to do natural experiments with people. So when they're coming into the lab to get tours, I will leave out a certain number of chairs. And beyond that, then there's no more. And you will find out. So if I've got 11 chairs, the first 11 people that come in will sit on the chairs and the rest will stand. And they're happy to stand. But it's because our normality is that that's the culture. We'll come in and we'll sit down on the chairs. And then if there's no more, then we will do that. But if you actually just remove them, the majority of people will be happy to stand regardless. So it's it's that our environment is, has a big factor to play. Yeah, that's also interesting. And I think when people think about being physically active or doing exercise, they probably think of you know some sort of lycra clad fanatic on a on a bike, you know, zooming along, or someone who's running or training for marathons or anything like that. But it doesn't have to be so extreme, does it? Exercise can be very beneficial and very 
easy to do because it can be, it doesn't have to be so intense. It can be gentler. Oh, exactly. It's, you know, the, the key difference between physical activity and exercise is the structure. So physical activity is doing something basically because it's built into your lifestyle. It's what you happen to be doing. So it's almost um, something unintended, whereas exercise is planned, it's structured, and it's for the inherent benefit of health. Another example I give is a student's leaving from exactly the same place. One person has planned to run to campus because they want to link in and tie in their exercise and get the health benefits, whereas the other person has been late, they've missed the bus and they've had to run to get to the lecture on time. They've actually done the same thing, but one of them is actually physical activity and one's exercise. In terms of the intensity, then it's, yes, there can be greater benefits from more intense exercise or physical activity, but actually it's more about doing something and breaking up the sitting time, the sedentary time. So having these small amounts of its light physical activity which can be things like doing the housework, which unfortunately we've probably done a lot more of over the last 18 months. Hmm. Um, but any of these kind of jobs and things, they, they all add up to your total physical activity across the day. One of the interesting things for me is that recently we've actually implemented light physical activity into the government guidelines to consider it. Previously, we've always said, Children, for example, need to do 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity. But now it's thinking about the types of activity you're starting to do, maybe moving in time towards the quality, but accounting for everything else you do. Yeah, because I've always thought that when you hear moderate exercise, that that means basically go for a brisk walk instead of running. And and I'm, I'm sure that is the case, but you're saying that the definition of that can be widened out to, you know, just simply being more active and moving more in general? Yeah, the, the definition for moderate is generally increasing your heart rate, but still being able to maintain conversation whilst you're doing an activity. For some people, that could be doing a brisk walk. For other people, that might be starting to do um, a run or a running, for example. So it very much depends on your own baseline fitness levels as well. So once you start getting into a bit more of positive behaviours and being active, then you want to start increasing the intensity of activity to make it a little bit more relative to what you're capable of doing. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. There are still barriers for some people, aren't there? Again, I know this is anecdotal, but I think about going into work when I go into the office, I take one of these you know, public bikes that you can dock places and then you can drive them somewhere else and then just redock them and you're charged a pound or whatever. Um, and I want to do that because I don't want to drive and, and that's a moderate form of exercise. But, you know, sometimes the bikes don't work or you can't rent them. And then sometimes when you get to the office, you know, you, you've, you've sweat enough to maybe want a shower and you can't have a shower and all this kind of stuff. So are, are these some of the day-to-day barriers that are sometimes in place that result in people just, you know, driving and sitting and not moving and not being active. Oh, of course they are. And these these setups, I think, are absolutely fantastic. And I tend to use them more so when I'm somewhere that I don't live. And it's a case of it's a good way of going out and exploring different areas and seeing it. But it does, it ties it in. But I mean, for me, the biggest barrier is my hair. And, you know, that's... <laughs> That is something you've got to consider. And it's, <laughs> if, if you're cycling both ways and then you've got meetings either end, then that's just not a good use of time. So it's, you know, for me, it's making sure that when I am being active I'm or doing exercise, I'm doing it for long enough to get the benefits from it. And it's making sure that, you know, something we really push, again, it's the environment, is making sure that employers, for example, 
are really trying to push this rather than putting the parking costs up or whatever. They're incentivizing people cycling. Have they put the right provisions in place to make it feel secure that you can leave your bike there? Have they put showers in place? Are you, is there somewhere that you can store different things throughout the day? You know, all, all these kind of things. So for me, the, the schemes that you were talking around are great because it actually means that maybe I could run one way, but I don't have to think about, well, actually, I don't want to run both ways, but I can take a bike back the other way. It's just everyone has different barriers. So when we're trying to work at population levels, that makes it challenging. But it also means that I think when you start as a, as a scientist, you like to just change one variable and see what effect it has. And you like everything to be really tightly controlled. But realistically, when we're working with humans, people interacting with others, you can't control it. So actually, in some ways, whilst you might not be able to pinpoint which thing worked or didn't work, the key thing is that something works for each person. And that means that the different barriers can kind of be overcome on these population level. Sure. Now, you mentioned a second ago the past 18 months, and I assume that you know COVID-19 and the circumstances surrounding that have in lots of ways helped reinforce some of your key messages about physical activity and health, because I know it's not as simple as this, but there is a direct correlation, isn't there, between, you know, being unfit, being overweight, and the the way in which COVID affects you. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot of work in terms of immunologists looking into this, but essentially it's generally of less risk if you're a healthy body weight, slightly fitter. That said, we've um, had some interesting, we're actually doing some research around um, COVID-19, more around the, the kind of long-term implications and long COVID. But some of the anecdotes from them are pretty scary in the sense that you've got some people who would basically be classified as elite athletes who over 12 months after having it are still so breathless that they can barely do 3,000 steps a day. And when you put that in the context of the minimum we need to do, which is roughly around 10,000 steps a day for adults, that's quite shocking. And you can even hear it on the phone in terms of them struggling to to maintain a conversation with you. So I think the key thing is that it's had multiple effects. I think we can train people's breathing um, from being more active and try and get their health enhanced that way and hopefully have the protective benefits. But again, it's, it's the key one I always come back to at the moment, but it's the environment and how COVID and the restrictions aligned with it have made it more possible for some people to be physically active and much less um, possible for a lot of others. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it just, I guess it shows that there's still lots to be learned about about COVID too. But um, just one last thing before we go on to talk about uh, young people, because I know that's your focus. Obviously, your research, but your aims are to try and get people more active and healthy. And I guess on individual by individual basis, there are some people who will say, well, it's my own decision to make. Uh, I can do what I, I want and I don't need to be told what to do. So how would you address that firstly? But also, on, I guess on the flip side of that, by collectively being healthier and more active, there is a broader, maybe I'm answering a question for you here, but there, there, <laughs> there, there, there is a broader societal positive impact, isn't there, on things like the health service, but also a, a healthier population tends to be a, a happier population, etc. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. Before I actually came to Swansea, I worked as a health behaviour mentor as I was finishing off my PhD. And I had somebody, um, and it's, all, it's always the first families that you get assigned to that even now you would say would be the most challenging, but the most rewarding at the same time. And I had somebody who was saying, well, 
okay, so if I'm active this much more and I do these sort of things all the time and I do this, but I absolutely hate it and I don't enjoy it, yes, I might live for another two or three years or extend my lifespan, but what's the point if I don't enjoy it? Would I not be better off having a shorter life, but one I've done the stuff I enjoy in? And that's really hard to respond to. And it took a long time to build up the relationship with that particular family and that particular person. But what ended up happening with this was over time, it was a case of actually, what you can see is they value the relationship with the grandchildren. And that's why they come to that particular scheme. And over that, you then say, well, as harsh as it sounds, do you want to see your grandchildren grow up? And actually, for your grandchildren to have a healthy lifespan and enjoy different things, then actually they want to engage in these activities with you. And the change then was incredible. So I think it's, as you say, it's the societal benefit as well. And it's trying to find with that particular person, what is it that resonates with them? What is their motivation? And if you can do that in a way that actually their activity time is then just interacting with the grandchildren and physical activity is the byproduct, then that's great. Because if, if you enjoy it, you're going to keep adhering to it. Yeah. I'm really struck by how, you know, certain public health initiatives are now even prescribed on the NHS. I mean, I'm sure this isn't product placement, but I'm really fond of these Saturday morning park runs, which are, you know, just 5K sort of fun runs, but they're held across the country. And I'm pretty certain the NHS actually prescribes these for people who are underactive and and they've really changed people's lives. So there is quite a big sort of state drive here, isn't there? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the, there's a whole big boost at the moment around social prescribing and the idea there of the whole cost, the NHS or beyond in terms of the world for these for healthcare around with inactivity is massive. So if they can actually do prevention rather than cure and in some cases actually use exercise as medicine, then that's a massive health saving for them. So it's just making sure where it becomes difficult is What's the right thing for the right person? Is that a healthy thing to promote? And how do you, in some ways, when they need to, monitor whether they're actually adhering to it and how much benefit they're having from it? But as you say, if you get somebody into the right thing and you enjoy it, then that's great because they've got the social support, there's the infrastructure. It's just something that they know they can go to and will have people doing the same thing at the same time as them. Yeah, and to my mind, you know, you see people at the end of these these events and they are just, for having done something good, they're fundamentally happier than when they got there. And you think you've got then literally hundreds, thousands across the, the country of happier people who are probably going to go on and have a more positive day and that's going to sort of refract onto, onto society in a positive way as well. Yeah, and I find that, that you know, for me, if I'm... If I do exercise in the morning, I'm actually more active throughout uh-huh. the day. Yeah. I'm much more positive about things. And you can probably tell, and um, colleagues may attest to this, but you can probably tell if I haven't done the exercise in the morning. And there's nothing worse. In some ways, it's almost hanging over you. And that's coming from somebody who's researching this area. Sometimes it is still something that I think I've still got to do this, and I've got to fit that in. And that's where physical activity becomes a bit more of a positive because it's integrated into your lifestyle. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. Okay, so young people. Now, I have read that you're interested in psychological and 
psychosocial, <laughs> try saying that with a mouthful of teeth, uh, psych- <laughs> psychosocial well-being uh, in children. What do those two things mean? It's around, um, I, I suppose I'm, I'm interested in the, the whole span really, but it's around making sure that they've got the physical benefits, but there's also the psychological aspects in the sense of it's minimising the likelihood that they are going to suffer from mental health, anxiety, depression. There's a lot of increase in stress in children in terms of around things like exam pressures and it's how we actually overcome this and try and manifest it in the, the most positive way. But the psychosocial elements, more around the interactions with other people as well. So how can we ensure that people are engaging in the, the best possible behaviours to gain key fundamental movement skills, so the key types of skills that they need in order to transfer to living an active and healthy life, but also those key skills that you need to interact and get by by conversing with people. Yeah, and that's obviously why you focused on young people in particular, because these things are quite, all these issues can be quite acute in young people. Exactly. And it's one of these things is, you know, if you could imagine when you're trying, you've, you've got a bad habit, and let's face it, we all do. And trying to undo those bad habits is so much harder than developing new positive habits. And in some ways, it's a really difficult time to know, well, when is the right time to intervene? Because when they're really young, then actually it's the parents that probably have the most influence. So is it the parents that they're better to actually liaise with and try and get them to get their children to be more active? And then at some point, that slowly starts to shift where the, the children take more accountability. And it's it's trying to get it at that, for me and my research area, it's trying to get it at that time point where they're starting to take accountability for their own health. And at what age broadly is that? I tend to focus on upper primary school just before that transition to secondary school. You know, various kind of health and safety issues around how many are actually able to maybe walk to school, to cycle to school, or if they've got a long distance, get off the bus stop a couple of stops early um, to make up their physical activity, or they're able to make decisions in terms of do they, how active are they at playtimes and breaks, for example, and try and get them into these key habits. But that said, I'm I'm interested, you know, across the lifespan, and I think there's a lot to be said for making sure that anything you do is reinforced by society, the environment, the family, and and the wider infrastructure that they're around. Yeah, is there is there a danger of this all being a bit middle class as well? You know, that you, you talk about sort of family, and I'm sure, like in 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 sort of very secure family units, it's much easier to encourage children to be physically active. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. Is there, is there anything in that? Yeah, there definitely is. One of the things from uh, from COVID initially is that it's narrowed the sex gap. So usually, what we see is that girls are less active than boys, and that starts to increase as they go through puberty and maturation. Then on top of that, the positive thing from COVID was it narrowed the gap. So there's less sex differences in physical activity levels, but it widened the gap in terms of socioeconomic status. So those from more deprived backgrounds tended to decrease the physical activity levels, but those who had access to more green space, gardens, for example, were able to increase the physical activity levels. I still think I'm I'm very numerical in terms of how I've approached research. My background's more around maths and I've applied it to the context. But as part of my PhD, I had to do qualitative research, which was a, which was a bit of a shock to me initially. But it's actually, and I pain to say this, especially when it's being recorded, but I actually think it's fundamental to everything and you have to have that mixed methods approach. 
So for me, my first ever focus group that I, I conducted with kind of nine to 10 year old children. And I had no idea what I was doing, really. I was having these conversations and I had my semi-structured questions ready. Um, I asked the children, basically, in an ideal world, you know, what could, what could you see yourself doing? And they started talking, one in particular was saying that he would have two heads and four hands. And I was thinking, oh my God, I need to bring this back around. And I didn't think fast enough to bring the conversation back to what I thought it needed to be on. But actually, he kept talking and was saying that's so I could watch the TV and play a video game and eat my burger and chips at the same time. And I thought, actually, that's one of the most insightful quotes. And building on those and trying to get those qualitative feedback from people sometimes is, I mean, that's for me, it's formative research. It's any type of intervention we're doing, then what's the point of coming up with the best scientific thing that will make people be active if they don't want to do it? So involving the child in it is the key thing. And you've led nicely onto the next question I was going to ask, which is that I assume the main barrier to getting young people being physically active is what you've just mentioned, sort of technology, video games, et cetera. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword, without doubt. It can be, I think, initially when you start to think around how you can take people away from technology and get them to be active, you start to realise that you're fighting a losing battle, that technology is ever-evolving. It's basically ingrained in all our lifestyles, let alone with children's. It still surprises me how many toddlers can pick up an iPhone or whatever type of thing they do and just almost start flicking through your photos and know how to how to use it. It's just something they're brought up with. So trying to get them to relinquish that, it's it's not going to be an effective intervention. So the idea there is, well, use it. So how can you use technology to get children to be more active? So take the positives out of it. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. I, I guess we use it in two different ways. One way is to accurately assess what people are doing. So that can be what we tend to use is a little device called an accelerometer. And essentially that measures movement. But we want to know what type of movements they're doing as well. So we can use really fancy, and I say we, I use this in the wider context of computer scientists and engineers as well, and real, real big research teams. But you can apply lots of different processing techniques to not only find out how active they are or how intense the movement is, but the type of movement as well. And if you can overlay that with GPS, for example, you can start to look at which type of environment, so if you're thinking about a playground, which area of the playground actually promotes the most intense or the most kind of interactive type of movement. So that's one way. But the other thing is for us is that we as researchers are still arguing what's the best way to measure things and how can it be accurate because when we're working with people, we want their free living environment and that's not in a controlled setting like we have in the lab. So it's then how do we relay that information in a really simple way to children and how can we get them to be more active? One of the first projects I did when I came down to Swansea was actually trying to bridge the gap with engineers and computer scientists. And we did a project called Mission Possible. And this was really cool because we worked with a local film producer. They put together like a video that the kids would see that was actually filmed at their school. 
and it had a free runner because that's what the kids wanted and that was cool at the time apparently um so the free runner was going around the the school it was done through like the cctv grainy video footage they set the kids missions so on the monday they'd come in they'd get their monday morning uh, mission they would all wear at the time these little fitbits and they had different team colors they would have to go out to then perform their missions, which were all obviously active. And then when they came back in, the Fitbits would hook up through the school's Wi-Fi system and they had an LED strip that went round the whole classroom. So the length of the LED strip, for example, with the pink team, the length of the pink strip was how long they'd spent being active and how fast it flashed was how intense it was. So it just gave them that kind of near real-time feedback and how active they were. But the the key feedback, and again, I, I hate myself for doing this, but I come back to the qualitative research, but the key quote we had from the children and the teachers was, they don't like PE, but they absolutely loved that because it was just a fun game. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm sort of reluctant to talk about myself, but I hated PE in school. And I'm trying to think of pinpoint the moment in which at which physical activity became not just something I was interested in, but quite a quite a core part of you know my, my weekly routine. But I guess just from an observational point of view, there's there's got to be something that takes it out of the typical structures of PE lessons, I, I suppose, and and what what you're doing is, is is part of that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, I've got to confess, I hated PE when I was younger as well. In fact, I used to be someone that kind of excelled in most things, and then I remember vividly my prime. And it's only a primary school report, but it came back with positive for all subjects apart from PE, and I thought I'm going to show you. Um, and it kind of changed from that point <laughs> that I made a point of actually being more active and engaging in more things. But that's just because I'm a ridiculously competitive person, <laughs> which probably means I was suited to do certain sports. But it really is. It's just finding out at what, you know, irrespective of your time point, your health status, what's the thing that you enjoy and what's the thing that's best for you. But yeah, doing that on a population level is certainly a challenge. I was going to say, one of the, the things that came out from, from that research from Mission Possible was trying to find out what motivates the kids. And the key quote, and it's still one of my favourites, was around that they wanted to the competition against their dogs. <laughs> so they, they, they wanted the, um, the monitors put on the dogs and they wanted to compete with them. So great. I mean, a, a recommendation for, for research, and it's, they are out there, is that you know, everyone should have dogs, but it's not the kind of approach we can take, unfortunately. Oh, it's a shame. You've, you've got dogs, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, two. I was going to say unfortunately then, but I better be a bit careful. Oh, with that no, one. you can't say that. I, I've, have, have you attached any uh, Fitbits or monitors to them and, I don't know, raced them along the beach or something? Yeah, it, it has been known. <laughs> oh, really? And then, and th- there is a lot. So some of the research we've done, and I believe um, Professor Rory Wilson's done a podcast, but he's actually linked in with Rory. And it's it's really trying to look at how we look at animals and look at their movement and then compare that and translate it. So in many ways, the animal research, ironically, is a lot further along than humans. And I argue that one of the reasons is with animals, you put monitors on them and they they stay on them generally. (laughs) Yes, there are issues when they, they, they come off, but with humans, they can take them off whenever they want. They can leave them in things. I've even had to phone up a holiday camp in Scotland and ask them to dig in a sandpit to see if they could find one and send it back to me. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's an interesting one, but there is a lot of things we can learn from animal research and apply it to the human context. Yeah, and we did a very good episode with Rory Wilson in our last 
our last series, which I'd urge anybody to listen to, do a bit of self-promotion then. But just go back to sort of young people for a second. Is there a danger, do you think, Kelly, that sometimes encouraging children to do anything really, but in this case to be active, might sort of result in a in a kickback against being told what to do? Is that ever a problem that you encounter? Um, it's actually more one that we tend to get from parents or teachers, actually, around when we're suggesting um, certain types of things. It's a case of, well, especially when you're trying to use technology, it's, uh, you know, it comes back to that socioeconomic status angle. What happens if it's not accessible to them? How can we make sure that there's absolute parity for all children you're trying to engage? Children in general, if you're making it fun and it, you know, it, it's a little bit like, Oh, the way I always explain it is like hiding the vegetables in kind of purees and things for babies. It's uh, you basically you've got the hidden the hidden package of physical activity, but it's getting them to engage in things that are just fun and enjoyable. The new curriculum and how things are being approached and having this real kind of multidisciplinary approach is really positive. In fact, it's something that we did back when I was doing my PhD. My main intervention then was looking at a curriculum based approach but it was hiding physical activity messages within learning about history, how technology's evolved, how their grandparents might have got to and from school, how they now get there, or, for example, how to draw graphs and bar charts. You know, if you were to watch so many hours of TV or half an hour of TV every day and you lived to your 80, how many hours of it are you spending watching TV that time? If you could expend this many calories each half an hour instead what's the difference in terms of health or you know just all these kind of different ways of doing maths or relating to it but just where you learn different things so it's I think trying to do it in that approach you're not necessarily saying right you need to go out and be active because I think that is a negative message sometimes especially if people are concerned about their weight for example it's just about encouraging a healthy lifestyle yeah, and as you're speaking, I'm just—it's going through my head. I, I'm wondering whether, you know, the, the sort of the message around physical activity and uh, and exercise, as well, it sometimes is a bit polarised. Because on the other hand, if you're trying to encourage young people perhaps into becoming more physically active, in some ways, some of the people they they look at on social media are you know extremely fit and healthy, aren't they? And almost kind of unobtainably so because it's their jobs, because they're male or female models or or, or whatever, and. Sometimes when I look at that, I mean, I'm, I'm too old now to, to sort of think, oh, I'd really like to be like that. But I know a lot of young people probably do, don't they? Do we sometimes set young people almost unobtainable goals in terms of their physical fitness and their physical appearance as well? I think so. And I think social media has some you know, positive ways in terms of tackling and approaching it, but it's really hard to then monitor what people have access to. And it's exactly that role models shouldn't just be around in terms of this is the idealistic way that you should look or how fast you should be doing a run-in or any type, anything like that. Role models are the people that you really want people to relate to and respect and almost see what they've done. And in some ways, the best role models are actually the ones who've done and been through the journey themselves and will share that experience. It's just hard how to relate that to them. But again, whenever we do the formative research, that's a key question we always ask is, who's your role model? And you'd be surprised, or not surprised maybe, how many people it's the parents. So if you can engage the parents and get them to be positive role models, then that tends to be a really good way you know, going forwards. The issue we have is 
what kind of situation and environment do those children have? Again, I, th- I think one of the earlier things that really struck me from speaking to children was around one particular school, which was in a really deprived area, and the children spoke around how their parents had three or four jobs. It meant they couldn't take them to different types of activities. But actually, they were just as active as the ones who described their parents who dropped them off at structured sports classes or football lessons or whatever it was that they were going to. And in terms of the physical activity levels, there was no difference between them. But the way they accumulated it was very different. So those who were structured might have had, you know, those who went to football, you could tell had fantastic, really nice quality of movement for kicking, but because they hadn't done other things, they didn't really have those skills. But the ones who actually, as in their words, described creating different games, and I think there was a whole story about a green giant game that they'd made up at the castle, and they're all really active. And actually, their skills were really positive because they climbed trees and they did the kind of things that in some ways we almost stop children from doing now because we're concerned about health and safety. So it's, I, I think... There are problems with social media and role models. It's just how much can we do to stop them? And if we can't stop them, well, what do we do to try and make them as positive as possible? And I think it's thinking around the background and trying to make that as positive as we can for those particular children. Now, you've written uh, that it's important for the public to share data as part of uh, public engagement and citizen science. Can you tell us more about that? It's generally something that's um, quite new and not something that we've previously done enough of. Public engagement for me is, it's, it's the fun bit for me, if I'm honest. It's the bit where you actually get to interact and see if that your suggestions or your ideas are actually impactful. So yes, we might be able to write a scientific paper that shows it's fantastic for this health and so on. But actually, how do we target that? How do you roll that out and get as many people involved as possible? But I think there is a big role, and I think we can collect a lot of, I say a lot of data, but we can get a lot of information from people just in terms of what they do, what works, what doesn't work. And then you're also including the children and their families in that process. So some of the ideas we're thinking around are, can we get them to, even if it's with their pedometers, which are really cheap, or if they have got different types of monitors that they're wearing, such as Fitbits or Apple products or whatever, and like no products in particular. But if we can get them to almost update their information on a large scale, then we can actually start to look at how active people are and they're involved in that process and they're important. So some ideas are trying to use that in science cafes or science museums and pull the information and almost have, in some ways, a map of the UK, if you like, or the world and try and look at different areas and see how active different areas are and how that changes over time, just by the information people are putting in. When when you hear this term data sharing, it sometimes sort of rings alarm bells, but obviously I don't assume there's anything sort of sinister going on here with, uh, with, with the kind of information that you want to share with people or collect from people. No, it's literally just the, the movement data, if you like. So data that in, in some ways is already stored in the cloud and it's just whether they are happy to share how active they've been. Yeah, some of the some of the slightly less feasible in some ways on a large scale work that we've done is around 3D printing. So we've actually used people's, we've obviously given them an accelerometer and it's a research grade device, but they've worn it for a week. And when they've given it back, we've downloaded their data 
And we've translated that into a 3D printed model of how active they've been on each day. Wow. And this was designed from the, the kids. I thought I was quite creative, but, but until I until we actually used Play-Doh um, the first time in research, <laughs> and we got the children to basically model how they visualize their first activity. And we, we had some awesome Play-Doh models, uh, much better than anyone we've ever had when we tried the same process with adults. <laughs> but we had things like um, a smiley face, and the person had no hair because they were, had done no activity. And someone else had seven really long strands of hair because they were really active in every day of the week and they had a big smiley face. So that, that's one idea that we've done. And then the children loved it. So they spoke. It just showed that they understood it. So they spoke around on one week how they had done nothing on Monday, but that's because they weren't well. And the next week they decided to go swimming and how that shifted that bar up. Then we had others who kept them as key rings and they could tell you each week how they were progressing or just why they hadn't done it. And it just, for me, it's the understanding. And if we can get them to understand what they need to do, it doesn't matter whether they can recite the government guidelines or not. It's just, can they reflect and think, yes, today I've done enough or actually I've not done much. I should go out and be more active. That, that's the kind of way that I would like to involve more people to kind of looking at what we would term data sharing. Okay. Now you've hinted at this quite a few times throughout the conversation, but obviously this kind of work involves collaborating with, working with, you know, a, a huge range of other people, but also organisations and, you know, doing my, my homework uh, before we spoke, you know, I, I've seen that you've contributed information to or worked with, you know, some big names here. We've got like the Chief Medical Officer uh, for the UK, but also the WHO. So yeah, t- tell us more about this. The chief medical officer work is around updating the children and young people's physicality guidelines, as well as trying to think about what kind of activities they need to do. So essentially, it's a group of academics, policymakers, but trying to pull up, well, what research have we actually got and what should we recommend that people are doing and how do we tailor the messages that we, we put across there? But again, as I say, that you, you work with this and you, you work really closely but actually how you then translate that in a real simple way to children to get them to understand it is almost a two-pronged approach. The other thing that I've been looking at is actually trying to make sure that we have sufficient data in the UK. So previously we've done national surveillance on what we call self-report data, where older well, adults or older children might report how much activity they've done, which is very subjective. And what I might say is moderate could be different to you or My memory might be absolutely atrocious and I can't remember what I've done, uh, which is far more likely. Hmm. Or now we want to move towards what we call device-based. So maybe using things like accelerometers and trying to do that on a larger level, which is actually something we've just started to to do in Wales. We've got around a thousand accelerometers that we're starting to do population level surveillance on by measuring people's physical activity levels, stratifying that by age, sex, but also socioeconomic status. So we can really start to identify what the current picture is, basically. Does this tie in with the work you've done with the Welsh Institute of Physical Activity, Health and Sport, or is that something else? No, that massively ties in with it. So that's actually an initiative which is largely funded and driven by Sport Wales. But essentially, it was something that we set up to basically break down the barriers of, of academics in some ways. So what you find is that a lot of people are really passionate about the research, but there's also a lot of pressures on academics to meet certain outputs. And sometimes that results in 
probably not the optimal working mechanisms whereby the best way to, to address a, a question is to work with lots of other people who have different expertise or complementary expertise. So the idea with this is that it links in all eight Welsh higher education institutes across Wales and Sport Wales, and it links in with various different kind of um, policy or government questions. So we're there essentially to address questions that come up from people working in policy, people who are practitioners, people in schools, if there's questions they have in terms of how to enhance physical activity and health across Wales, then that question would then come to us and we would appoint the best academics or the best team, basically, to address that question. Now, there's going to be, well, we hope there's going to be, I'm sure there is going to be loads of young people listening to you talking now, Kelly, and they'll be absorbing the messages that you're that you're giving them and, and sort of ruminating on them, on them, I'm sure. But if there's people who actually are so interested in what you're saying that they want to go into your line of work, into your line of research, what advice would you give them? I think the key thing for me is to keep doing the things that you enjoy. And if it's something that you're really interested in, you're focusing is get in touch, have a look for opportunities for work experience. I've had a few people who've done work experience and absolutely loved it. And I've had a few that have then thought, They've gone really quiet and I've asked them if everything's all right. And they've kind of said, oh, I'm not really enjoying it. I'm like, oh, that's great. And they look at me really strangely. I'm thinking, well, it's just as important to know what you don't want to do as it is what you do want to do. So throwing yourself in different situations, gaining experience is the key thing. And there's not just, it's, yes, ideally, if, you, if it's definitely what you want to do, then obviously looking at the sciences and maths are fantastic. But there are other ways of doing it. I went into a completely different area first and then kind of diverged into what I was passionate about. And I think for me, you know, I I actually don't regret the pathway I've taken because I actually quite often go back to my roots and and learn from the things that I did in in a different kind of area. So it's, yeah, follow follow your heart, follow your passions, but work hard and uh, (laughs) work hard at the same time. and, And hopefully it'll be the right thing. But from my perspective, if anyone's ever interested, then I'm always um, more than happy to keep talking to people. I'm sure people will will enjoy hearing that. Kelly, it's been a great conversation. Obviously, I'm receptive to a lot of the messages uh, here, but I think it's, you know, it's a topic that has a lot of wider relevance. So thank you very much for giving up your time today and, and chatting to us. Thank you very much for having me. To find out more about Kelly's research, please visit her staff profile page on the university's website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you once again to our guest, Professor Kelly McIntosh. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.